the idea was to make tree planting accessible to everyone. Welcome to Nature Magic. Today I'm talking to Garode McAvoy, a 21-year-old Irish wildlife biology graduate and the founder of Reforest Nation that has just hit its goal of planting 50,000 trees in Ireland. Borough Nature Sanctuary has partnered with Reforest Nation to plant 1,000 trees this autumn. Their new goal is 1 million trees planted. Listen in to the amazing story of how one young person started Reforest Nation in lockdown during a global pandemic. So hi Garodes, you're very welcome to the podcast and I'm really looking forward to hearing about Reforest Nation. Uh, where are we talking to you from today? Hi Mary, I'm really happy to be here. I'm from County Laos, um, smallest county in Ireland in the northeast, about half an hour north of Dublin roughly, um, near the town of Drogheda. Great. Before we ask you any of the questions, can you tell us what Reforest Nation is and how you started it? It's a very exciting story. Yeah, so essentially it is uh, like it, it's, in the, it's in the name, I suppose. It's, it's an initiative that wants to reforest the nation, that wants to plant a lot of trees all over Ireland and, and hopefully the world. And I suppose the idea was to make tree planting accessible to everyone and to help people tangibly reduce their carbon footprint and, and contribute to biodiversity. Fantastic. And you had a goal of 50,000 trees. I think you just reached that goal. I did. So yeah, we did. That's I incredible. Still need to get so I need to get around to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's going really good. Like the goal for this year is 100,000. It's definitely achievable. It will happen. Like um, it's, there's a big demand from society in general to want to contribute to biodiversity like there's a ton of big businesses who want to support this sometimes for the right reasons sometimes for the wrong reasons um but you know we, we're going particularly to small businesses in the beginning uh, because it's more fun than just going to one big guy asking them for all the trees it's better to kind of be able to help small businesses out who genuinely want to help the planet uh, they're not doing it because they want to look good even though it can help them look good and it can be good for customers to know that they're supporting a business who are actually uh, restoring local biodiversity and fighting climate change. And even to know the certain products that they sell, you know, you, you buy a product, you plant a tree. So I've done that before. Where I, my actual phone I'm holding here in my hands, I bought that and they planted a tree for, from a company. And I ended up picking that one because this was before I started the project because I planted a tree. Versus the other guys, it was the same price, but they didn't plant trees. So it's just, it makes you feel good about buying stuff. It makes you feel like, you know, you're donating to the planet as well as getting good products. So I wanted to create that incentive for businesses um, to, to join. And also with, with individuals too, the incentive is that they can reduce their carbon footprint, contribute to biodiversity. And it's much cheaper than if they wanted to do it themselves. If they wanted to go out and buy the trees themselves, it would end up being a lot more expensive than one euro 50 per tree and a lot more work and yeah so that way we can plant you know 100 trees a year for less than the cost of a netflix subscription so yeah that's amazing it really is um and so there's lots of very interesting businesses on your website which is a very nice website i have to say that you did yourself thank you i spent um, a while designing it just before i launched the project um i basically spent a month designing the website to make sure it looks really legitimate and I have a lot more things to add to it. Um, we, we, we're, I haven't announced it officially yet, but we're actually partnering with other initiatives outside of Ireland uh, to plant even more trees and bring down the cost even more. Uh, because, you know, in, in developing nations, the, the tree prices are even lower than in Ireland. Um, and it has even more of an impact because some of these places have a huge amount of biodiversity, uh, like Indonesia, uh, like places like uh, Madagascar. They have a ton of biodiversity. So planting trees there, um, is, is really, really important because right now, uh, tree cover is increasing um, in, in most of the developed world. It has increased by, I think, double in like the last, like, something like the last 30 years, whereas in the developing nations, it's been the opposite. Uh, a big reason for that, believe it or not, is because of coal. We always think of coal as being a bad thing, and it is for the most part. It's not good for the atmosphere, but because we've been burning coal in Europe and America, we haven't been using firewoods. But unfortunately, in developing nations, there's a big demand for firewood. I was speaking to someone in the Gambia and, you know, it's illegal to cut down uh, trees for firewood there. But unfortunately, because we're so poor, it's one of the only ways people can make money is to go cut down trees and sell the firewood. 
So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be able to support initiatives all around the world. Uh, I think people really like the idea of planting a tree in Ireland and a tree somewhere else in the world um, and obviously benefit people even more because in a lot of these countries, people are even more to connect to nature than we are and they really rely on nature. You know, we all rely on nature, but they rely firsthand, you know, for food security, for water security, for, for employment um, to, to reduce um, land degradation or, you know, plant mangrove forests to reduce coastal erosion or even threats from tsunamis. So trees have so many benefits. And I think that uh, by supporting initiatives uh, and using our wealth here in Ireland to plant trees in Ireland, the cheapest of any initiative in the country, while still managing to plant trees all over the world for, you know, still really cheaply, um, like 10 cents per tree, um, then we can, you know, have a really massive impact and it'll bring us much closer to getting to a million tree goal much quicker. Yeah, that's, um, it just shows what one passionate person can do in lockdown. So it's it's really incredible. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we we spoke before, like, and I was saying like, you know, I, if it wasn't for lockdown, I wouldn't have came up with this project at all. Like I'm a wildlife biologist. I just finished my my final year, so I can call myself that now. But uh, like, um, yeah, I was hoping to go abroad to do conservation work because I, that's what I did the previous year and I really, really love that and that's what I'm passionate about. And as much as I like trees, uh, animals are always my real interest and passion than, than plants. But I, 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 trees are the foundation for a lot of ecosystems around the world, including Ireland. And I knew that if I wanted to, like initially when I started the project, I just thought it'd be Ireland. So if I wanted to help, you know, species here in Ireland and biodiversity, trees are a really good way of doing that, an efficient, quick way uh, that people like and it's it's something that can be really beneficial so um i'm glad that out of lockdown something good has happened you know i mean as bad as it's been in many ways uh, and yeah like i never would have thought to do something like this and it's good that you know as well as doing my work abroad outside of the tree planting season i can come back you know for a few months each year to ireland and contribute to my my local environment and biodiversity as well which I didn't think I would be doing. So I'm, I'm very glad about that. So. It's incredible. And you've been studying and doing this at the same time. It just shows what a young person can do uh, um, with great energy. Um, can you explain to us why the Sitka spruce planting around Ireland uh, isn't so good for biodiversity? Yeah. So it's not just because it's Sitka spruce. It's not like Sitka spruce is this evil species. It's because of how we're planting. It's, it's, it's a problem all over the world from China uh, to Indonesia, to Portugal, uh, to Ireland, you know, uh, it's because of the way trees are planted. So it's monocultures, you know, uh, when you plant trees in regimented rows, one, one, or, one or two species usually, I mean, in Ireland, I believe it's something like 85% of them are sick of spruce, maybe a few others are lodgepole pine that are grown. Um, also, another problem is not just about the lack of diversity in species, is but they're not native. You know, that's that's also a problem with some species, um, like you know, sick spruce, lodgepole pine, the main ones. They're grown for timber, uh, so they're not really grown because they're good for biodiversity. Uh, they come originally from like Western Canada, uh, completely different ecosystem to here in Ireland. They haven't evolved with the species here, so they don't contribute to biodiversity here. Uh, on top of that, um, you know, in Portugal. Uh, that lit the fires a few years ago that was called by caused by eucalyptus plantations so a species that comes from australia grown in monocultures in portugal you've often heard of the palm oil plantations in indonesia another monoculture that's not native to the region and is just grown in you know massive areas and looks from a distance good but isn't really and uh, you know in ireland it's the conifer plantations that has been grown since you know about 100 years now um you know if you go back to 1900s, there was only 1% tree cover in Ireland. Uh, we brought it way down from the most forested country in Europe. You know, we're talking 80% plus, probably more, to all the way down to just 1%, um, comparable to Iceland today. Actually, twice as low as Iceland. Um, so, yeah, crazy, crazy low. And we, we've been increasing the tree numbers. And it looks good on paper, but it's really not good for the planet or biodiversity. Um, the Irish forestry sector is actually a net emitter of CO2. So one of the big reasons they used to kind of justify this was that they're absorbing CO2. Yeah, it's not good for the local environment. It damages our rivers uh, because of excess runoff, uh, because they they dig a lot of drainage ditches. 
Um, they also um, spread a lot of uh, fertilizers uh, on the land to grow the trees, which is really damaging to our rivers. Uh, I actually firsthand know about this because unfortunately on my own family farm, we planted trees plantations in the 90s. And it's not because of anyone's fault, apart from the government's, because the, the, the local farmers didn't know. They just thought a tree was a tree and they weren't doing it out of bad intent. Like I, I know these people, because they're my family, and I know that they weren't doing it out of bad intent. But unfortunately, that's the way. And um, it's really important that we don't plant these uh, non-native monocultures. We plant a real diverse mix of trees um, and try to keep them native. And if you can follow just those two simple things you can really have a, have a positive impact and you absorb carbon and one of the other problems is that because the trees are being cut down all that carbon gets released back into the atmosphere and the way that they're planted so intensely as well it can destroy our bogs our grasslands and, and release carbon from the soil so tree planting is really good if we do it the right way do you happen to know what percentage of irish uh, forestry is monoculture oh um it's 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 ninety percent plus around that yeah like traditionally it was I think they're making efforts now to increase, uh, but I know like traditionally there was a quota for like ninety percent uh, conifer ten percent broadleaf, even the word broadleaf is confusing because that might make you think that's native but actually a lot of times it's not native species of broadleaf, um so that 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 isn't great either so you know you want to stick to natives if you can. And then if, if not, try to have a diverse mix if possible. So even when they do add these other species, it, it brings up maybe the tree species total to maybe two or three, which uh -huh. isn't really good enough when you're, you should be talking about at least 10 plus. Um, but, you know, it's not just in Ireland. Um, like the entire international community has a goal um, in the next, I think it's like decade, to plant an area the size of India. Huge, huge area. But 50% of that is monocultures. And they try to use it as a, it's, it's basically greenwashing or tree washing as Greenpeace say. Um, so it's a big problem. And I just wanted to raise a bit more of awareness about it because as much as we all love trees, unfortunately when humans get in the way and we, we interfere with nature and we take a species from Canada, plonk it here in Ireland and plant it in huge quantities because everything's so connected, it can have damaging effects. And, you know, like species are going extinct because of it, like the, the pearl mussels out in the west of the country in Kerry uh, because they're so sensitive and a lot of riverine ecosystems. Our rivers have deteriorated so much. You know, since uh, I was born, um, the rivers went from being uh, over 500 uh, streams across Ireland uh, being of high quality, like pristine status. They did a, another sample about two years ago and they found that I think it was less than 10. Mm. So it's, it's just, and, and that, you know, even since I was born, like going further back, there was even more pristine rivers. So yeah, it's, it's really yeah, no, important it's, it's that actually we, we, we do this. It's disastrous. And I heard as well that the Sitka spruce um, needles uh, are poison for fish. So the trout yeah, has declined, yeah. not only because of the fertilizer and, mm. you know, dr digging the drainage and everything, but it's actually um, a poison to the fish. Yeah. So it's and, very and, good to get the message out to people who don't know, just to get the education out there that monocultures um, and tree mm. planting for climate and biodiversity are two different things. And you want to go very for different the right things, thing. Yeah. 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 And it was really important to us that we wanted to, not just plant trees because it looks good, but actually, you know, it actually brought up the costs, even though we're still very cheap, it brought up the cost by probably double than what it could have been, even more. You know, we could have planted one species and it'd be really cheap, but in the end, I wanted to make sure it was a really diverse mix. So it's at least the most diverse of any initiative in Ireland. We're planting over 20 different species, uh, up to 25 species uh, to really have that diversity, um, which I think is so important because biodiversity, climate change are interlinked. Uh, we often see them as separate issues, but really, if biodiversity around the planet isn't doing well, it actually can, can speed up uh, climate change and actually make the planet less resistant. It's almost like when you have a sick person who has a, has a cold versus somebody who's healthy. The person who, who, who's already sick is not going to be able to withstand it as much, uh, like a temperature even, probably a better metaphor for the planet. So it, it's similar. Um, but unfortunately, for a long time, you've never seen it that way. And that's really important. And the good thing about trees is you can hit both those things when you when you plant them the right way. 
Mm. Uh, we're going into partnership with you. Um, you're donating trees to us and we're donating a bit of land. So that should happen in the autumn. Yeah. I'm very happy about that. So well done. For yeah, no, work. I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah. I, I really think that for, for an initiative to be scalable and, you know, really have a big impact, it's important not just to focus on on your own bit of land. Like we have our own farm. We could have just decided to plant up the farm and that would be it. But you know, in the end, it, it, if we're going to have a bigger impact, we need to cooperate with everyone, all of the nature lovers, all of the, uh, you know, climate ambassadors and uh, custodians of our, of our world, you know, around Ireland and the world uh, to actually have a really big impact because it's better to be this decentralized initiative that helps bring funding to, you know, to charities, to community initiatives, uh, to landowners who want to plant up their lands than just be centralize and that way we can have a much bigger impact um to, to, to do good so yeah it's a lovely project and uh, so you've just finished your studies um wildlife conservation was it yeah wildlife biology and wildlife conservation biology. Was a big part of that yeah great and uh, so do you want to tell us what your favorite animals are yeah um so i actually like I, I would be lying if i said i had a favorite animal like i actually have to force myself to give you one now i do i have uh, some animals i like that i'll mention and that I find particularly fascinating, but I, there's so many species that I find fascinating. I could never sit down and pick one, like even with my job in the future, there's not one field I want to sit down and work in. Some people are like, I want to be a primatologist. I want to be, a, uh, you know, like work, work with ants. I want to do this with lizards. I really want to travel across the world and spend a few months on a different project each few months. Even if it means I don't get paid as much, I don't mind as long as I can see as many animals as possible. Um, so I really love them all. But uh, one that I'm going to be working with soon is slots. Um, oh. I, I find I find slots. I mean, slots are very cute, um, and that's a great attraction. But they're they're quite interesting, and specifically their family is interesting. Um, you know, unfortunately now there's only two genres of slots remaining. Um, but you know, if you go back, you know, even just a few thousand years ago, uh, unfortunately humans had a role. Uh, but they, they, they were the really, really diverse group of species, really diverse, much more diverse than you might think of, uh, because we only have one subset of them now. So you had certain slots. And by the way, most of them were bigger than a man. So the ah. ones we have now are quite small. They live in trees. So that's our view of slots. Most are bigger than a man, most species. Um, and, uh, you know, so there was certain types that lived in the ocean and swam and were about the size of sea lions. Uh, other types, um, you know, dug burrows that were so tall um, a man could walk through them without even ducking his head. These are 80 meter long burrows that they found in Argentina. These slots dug through rock oh uh, just my a few thousand years ago. Yeah, crazy. These are giant slots. Like uh, there were certain species uh, that would climb mountains um, and we found their, their bones in caves in Peru. Um, and they were really, really diverse mix of species and they fill so many niches. Another type which recently disappeared, you know, relatively recently in terms of the planet, uh, were ones the size of an elephant with giant armor-plated skin uh, that were across the Americas. Like giant slots are extremely important for ecosystems, but unfortunately we removed them all uh, with the with the megafauna extinction. I'll touch on later when you, when we talk about rewilding. Um, but yeah, they are really diverse. Um, you know, there are certain species like the uh, Joshua tree uh, in America. And the distribution of the Joshua tree is directly linked to the distribution of the Shasta ground slot, which was once found in North America up until about 10,000 years ago. So the, 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 this species of ground slot uh, would eat the seeds and, and poop them out in certain locations. And that's directly correlated with the distribution of this slot. If it wasn't for this slot, uh, there wouldn't be uh, these trees. Another thing you can thank uh, uh, slots and particularly giant slots in particular for is the avocado believe it or not. Uh, avocado is giant slot food, believe it or not. So, Fascinating. Um, isn't that crazy? Uh, uh, so so the avocado, um, so they were originally eaten by giant slots. Nothing else could actually, if you ever see the seed, the stone inside of the avocado, it's very big. Nothing nowadays can eat that. Uh, and the giant slot could. Giant slot went extinct when humans happened to be there. 
And then these humans decided to continue farming the avocado. If it wasn't for the, for the, uh, the giant slot and the humans farming it, continuing to farm it, it wouldn't still exist. And, and we have, we can thank the giant slot now for that giant slot food that we, we love to eat. Oh, gosh. Toast sometimes, so. That is fantastic. So how, yeah. would you, how do you define a sloth? I mean, I know they've sort of two nails. Do they all have two nails or what are their particular features? Uh, yeah, so it's hard to define, uh, I suppose, traditionally. Like, the whole genre because there's so many different types and so very but uh, in general there's a few different things and obviously modern slots because there's only two genres it's quite easy uh, believe it or not the two species of slots nowadays uh, the two-toed slot and the three-toed slot uh, which is really kind of wrong and that's two-toed it's actually two-fingered so the two-toed slot has two fingers at the front it has actually three toes at the back right. uh, that's how you kind of separate them as the two and the three-toed they actually are not related very much but because of convergent evolution, they both came from animals that lived on the ground and both decided to go into the canopies and live a really slow life. So for whatever reason, this seemed to be a type of existence that somehow was beneficial, um, even though it might not appear to be to be that slow and have such a slow metabolism um, and you know extend your the, the fact that they have to come down to poo on the ground and 50% of the mortality is when they come down to poo something I learned uh, like it doesn't seem like a very practical lifestyle but for whatever reason yeah. evolution decided these two animals um, should become similar and do a similar thing so that's why the two and the tree toad actually look similar even though they're quite disrelated um, the two toads kind of look a bit like a pig they have a pig nose the other guys have more of an almost human looking face um, but yeah they, they usually have a teat um, that doesn't have enamel which allows us just to keep regrowing and regrowing and regrowing so eat as much as they want. That's one, you know, characteristic. Uh, they have like very ribbon-like uh, muscles. Their muscles have just become ribbons at this stage because they they barely use them. Um, yeah, they're very interesting animals. Uh, they're so slow. Uh, the algae grows on their back. Oh, that's um, so and we don't, we don't, incredible. We don't. We don't. We we measure their speed in feet per second, uh, not miles per hour. Uh, and were all the yeah. uh, prehistoric sloths were they all slow, or is that that could be something no. that's no, no, they weren't. No. Yeah, no, was, wow. no they, they weren't at all. So these guys got a really slow metabolism. The ones nowadays, they have a, a very slow metabolism, which correlates to a, like a low body temperature. And that makes animals traditionally quite slow. Uh, the giant anteater in uh, Argentina is similar. It wouldn't be quite as extreme, but it, it's quite slow. It has a slow metabolism also. It basically makes it very efficient. You know, it's, it's not good for getting away. They're often preyed upon by the harpy eagle. Uh, I'm going to Costa Rica, by the way. That's that's where I'm going to work, and that's a lot wow. of stuff out there. So hopefully, I'll see some in the wild, and also in the centre I'm working in. Uh, but yeah, so th there's there's advantages to lifestyle because it is so efficient. Uh, because they blend in the actual algae that grows on the back helps them blend in with it, the trees. Um, and yeah, it means they can live off very poor nutrient food. Uh, but yeah, they weren't always that slow. Um, you know, that's just one subset. Uh, the last giant slots went extinct only 3,500 years ago on oh the island goodness. of Hispaniola. Ah. So it basically went extinct when humans arrived on the island, kind of like wherever else. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're a very recent thing. And, you know, we, I'll get into it later, but there's a lot of animals that should be in the ecosystem that aren't. And, and without them, you have these massive gaps. And we only can ponder what the ecosystem would be like if we brought them back or if we yeah. had them, you know. Yeah, so. well, that was, that was a really, really interesting animal to pick. And have you got um, a profound experience in nature that you'd like to tell us about? Um, yeah, so I suppose I've had a good few. I hope to have a lot more, you know, as, a, as I travel, because I really want to just travel across the world. Um, one, one, I mean, I can't say I've had a ton, and I'll be honest, because I've, I've been in Ireland most of my life, where a lot, you know, the nature is kind of subdued compared to some parts of the world. But I've had, I mean, you have like small little experiences. But one really cool one was last year, about this time last year, uh, on my farm. The amount of starlings that arrived on my farm was just, you were talking uh, on the last podcast, I listened to it about de extinction. You're talking about the passenger pigeon, which I happened to do a whole essay on for my for my uh, work. Oh, college. really? Really? Uh, wow. I, yeah, it, it wasn't like the passenger pigeon, but it was a lot of starlings. Like, I, I can send you videos of it. I've never seen so many birds in my life. I didn't even know you could have that many starlings in one place. Um, you know, they were coming for the last few years, every year around the same time. They still haven't arrived yet. I'll see what happens. Um, but they were coming every year, and each year you get more and more. So they obviously were, and they were sitting on the flag, the tele telegraph poles yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I don't know if they were telling each other that this was a good location to come to, 
Like, cause, cause they're they're they're, should, they're from Scandinavia. These guys, you know, they're coming from Scandinavia. So, so obviously, word got through, and each year it was like becoming a festival. It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and more people are <laughs> coming to, to see it. You know, more starlings are coming to see it. Uh, and by last year, it was just crazy. Um, the amount of birds that could come out of one hedge, uh, I couldn't believe. It was like you had opened uh, like a tunnel to another dimension, and you were shooting starlings through. It was like a it was like a wormhole of starlings coming out of the hedge. You, you look at the hedge, the hedge is black from a distance. You're wondering why is the hedge black? And you go towards it and like, you, like you think it's going to stop, but it doesn't. They just keep coming out of the hedge for like minutes, like like streams and streams of starlings. Like the, the whole area, there, there probably was upwards of like hundreds of thousands of That's starlings. That's amazing. There that, must be, my, there must be. Farm. That's amazing. There must be a lot of food for them there. Otherwise they wouldn't oh, be yeah. there. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely not enough to support that many. Uh, maybe in the general area. I mean, they like grasslands. They like open, open ecosystems. Like before, you know, when we, when we didn't have woodlands they were, or when we had woodlands, they probably, they probably weren't as numerous in Ireland. It was when we removed our woodlands, create more of a grassland ecosystem. The last species came into Ireland, like the corn crake, like starlings. Starlings have like long legs. Uh, they have a long beak to probe for insects. That they're very adapted to grasslands, uh, so they can still do well in Ireland. Unlike some species, they can still do well. But I believe their population is actually declining quite a lot. So it was good to see so many. I think the population has declined forty percent, uh, which actually is is a lot. But some species is even more. Uh, so it was really good to see so many and to know that you know there is still a lot of them in certain certain areas. And hopefully they can. Uh, they can do even better because it's just an amazing sight. It's, it's called a murmuration when you have a, a lot of starlings. Uh, in Rome, they're a massive problem because uh, they, they fly above the city and it kind of looks like it snowed afterwards, you know, uh, <laughs> from all the, the bird poop and the cars. Like, uh, uh, yeah, like the cars are destroyed. Um, I always noticed that. I, I was working in a, a seabird colony and we had a, uh, like a, a lookout post and one day I went to sit on it after the starlings had po po like perched there and it was just white yeah. but uh, no they're, they're, they're great I mean uh, it, that's natural natural fertilizer you know it's it, if it wasn't for humans adding all excess fertilizer that would be like the natural fertilizer that would be given to the land it all has a role you know yeah yeah so, that's uh, a, that's an amazing perception amazing so that was a cool experience for me amazing description really really good yeah. well done yeah. I, suppose I, will, they... I will send you videos i will send you videos I do do we'll post them i don't suppose they wanted the fertilizer in rome can you talk yeah. about what uh, <laughs> what it would be like if we did reforest part of ireland and what species you'd like to see coming back mm, yeah um so i believe that you know reforestation is just part of rewilding um and i mean like there's two ways you can get reforestation you can just leave the land let it do its thing you know that's what nep did in the uk with isabella tree and um, they just left the land do its thing and the trees came back you can do that but if you want to kind of accelerate the process because we don't really have much time you know if everything we should be doing right now should be trying to do it as quickly as possible because we don't have time with in the biodiversity crisis climate change you know it's all under time limits unfortunately so yeah, you could let the trees regenerate naturally in Ireland, but the problem with that is, is because we've removed so much of our woodlands, we've reduced the diversity quite a lot. So you might have one species like ash, and it's really good at regenerating. Problem is, the ash is all dying, so even if it does regenerate, it probably will be killed. Uh, I hear you have a lot of issues with ash dieback in, in the burn. We have it here. Um, my my a uh, 4 year project that didn't ash die back and we found 98% of the ash in my area had it. Um, so it's not looking good for the ash, which me and which is our most um, uh, populous tree in Ireland. Um, they estimate like 15 billion uh, damage will be done to the UK economy when it gets all removed. So it's, it, that's a big incentive to plant more trees because it's our most numerous tree uh, in terms of like biomass. So it's important to plant even more trees to replace it. Um, so when you plant a lot of different new species into an area, you're bringing back a lot of species that weren't there because of historic deforestation. So it's kind of like introducing extinct animals. Um, you know, in my area, like there's a lot of species you might have, like you might have the spindle tree, you might have roe and things like that. We don't have that going in my local area. And I can't say why. It could be to do with the local conditions, but they seem to be going fine when we planted them, uh, likely because it's just, you know, historic deforestation. Um, 
So yeah, tree planting is part of the puzzle of rewilding. Um, I don't think you should just cover the entire country in trees. I don't think that's the best for anything. I think in nature, you want a patchwork ecosystem. Traditionally, that's all always what it was. Uh, we often, um, or scientists always kind of taught like going back, you know, to the natural state, you would just have a forest across Europe going from one end to the other to the point where a squirrel could just, you know, run across the whole thing, no problem. That's what we used to think. We now believe it was a patchwork because we didn't take into account all the animals that once lived across Europe that actually right. opened up those forests. Right. Yeah. And that's where that's where rewilding comes in. Um, you know, there's there's I, I was I was listening, I, I can't remember the name of the man um who, who you were talking to on your last podcast, but it was very interesting. Connor O'Brien. He was really interesting and he yeah. a ton of stuff that I, I probably would have overlapped with if I hadn't listened to it. Okay. Um, but yeah. Uh, he was talking a lot about species that once lived here, but and, and he did briefly talk about it. It's like it's important that we recognize that a lot of species that went extinct recently. Now, when I say recently, the past like 20,000 years, you know, up to maybe you know 50,000 years, they're animals that probably would often still exist if it wasn't for humans uh, because of a thing called the megafaunal extinctions. And, and this brings into the context of why you would rewild, it's like, why would you? decide to bring back you know certain animals into a habitat why bring back you know wild boar wolves um you know uh woolly mammoth even if 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 they're able to uh why would you do this it all comes back to the megafaunal extinctions um so we evolved in africa as a species um and because of that uh, the animals there evolved with us so they became cute to us they became you know they knew what we were about and this is a, these are guys we need to watch Okay. You know, stay. Don't don't be too close to these guys because they'll take your your calf. Uh, uh, you know, like they'll take your young. Uh, you know, so so because we were a predatory species, so the animals there were adapted. So since since the last about twenty thousand years, only about fifteen percent of the megafauna, which to to put in a con into context, it's an animal bigger than forty four kilos. Okay. Is considered a megafauna. Uh, so you know that. So, so technically, a cow is a megafauna, a horse is, an elephant is. Okay. So that's a megafauna. So only 15% there have went extinct. Now, because unfortunately we've been so destructive, that's still quite a large number. But compared to other continents where they didn't evolve with us, uh, Africa's done great. When you often think of Africa, you think of a place with loads of big animals. You don't think about that maybe so much with Europe and say America and Australia. But that's the way it was. Every continent was like Africa. Um, you know, uh, and then as they spread out, you can see the rates of megafauna extinctions increase significantly more. In Europe, it was like, I think around 40 to 50%. Uh, by the time you got to the Americas, you're talking like 80%. Same with Australia, probably higher, like towards 90% megafauna loss in the last few thousand years, which is a blink of an eye. You know, traditionally they were like, oh, they went extinct because of climate change and because, of, you know, but no, it was because of humans and it was in combination with climate change. That's the important thing. So the climate was changing, but historically the animals always adapted. Yes, populations declined, but they adapted. If you go back to the last interglacial period, which is a time in Earth's history that is like now, uh, as in the ice caps have retreated, we're no longer in an ice age. It was 126,000 years ago. Sea levels were actually higher than it is now. It was two degrees warmer, and woolly mammoths survived it, and so did polar bears. Okay. So, so, so that's really important. We often yeah. think of climate change is just this one thing. It's all because of climate change. It's all because of sea level rise and temperatures that everything's going to die. It's, it's actually because of we weakened the planet with that. It's a combination of the two. It's like a double whammy. So when you, you yeah. spread across the globe, you had that double whammy. So you know, in I'm not going to talk about every continent as amazing as they are. You know, like yeah. you had marsupial lambs with opposable thumbs in Australia. You had the giant sloths. I was saying in in, in uh, the Americas. Short-faced bears, four-meter-tall bears, um, you know, giant animals. Like you had cheetahs in America. You had mammoths across the world. The Colombian mammoth lives in America. They often actually say that maybe we should introduce elephants back into the prairie ecosystems because they're so dependent on the on the Colombian mammoth, which is like a southern species of mammoth, which had, was hairless, like an elephant. Europe was similar. Um, so animals that should still exist in Europe if there was no human intervention. Uh, would be a, a lions, you know, they would be the top predator. Cave lions, they're about 20%, 30% bigger than the modern lion or African lion. Um, we still have paintings of them. Uh, they were mainless uh, of, of the paintings that humans uh, drew of them. 
Uh, we'd have Oryx, which is the ancestor of the cow. They only went extinct 1,600 years ago. Um, you'd have uh, cheetah, not cheetah, sorry, uh, leopards. Uh, you'd have hyenas, as we found, uh, as, uh, the, 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 um, as Connor was telling you, uh, we, we actually uh, found hyena bones in the cave in, in Ireland. We had two species in Ireland. Uh, pro uh, one of them we know of for, for sure. The other one was across Europe. So you could safe bet it was in Ireland because we were connected to the rest of the continent. Uh, so you had the cave hyena, which was twice as big as a modern hyena. And you had the spotted hyena in Europe also, which was found, still found in Africa. Um, you had scimitar cats, which is a, a type of a, a saber-toothed cat. Uh, you also had like, things that you really wouldn't expect, like hippos. Uh, you know, we actually found uh, uh, hippo bones underneath uh, the Thames in the London. Amazing. So hippos should, hippos, hippos should actually be there right now. It seems crazy, but they should. Uh, because the last time the world was this temperature, which, you know, it's like a cycle. We go into an ice age, we go out of one, we go into one, we go out of one. Last time it was like this, all these animals were there. Uh, another really, really important uh, species is like, uh, we had uh, two species of rhino in Europe, uh, Merck's rhino, and uh, I believe it's called the uh, short-nosed rhino. You know, that had a short-lipped rhino, something like that. Um, that had different niches. One lived in the woodlands, one lived in the, the savannas, and the straight-tusked elephants as well. So elephants are native to Europe. They should be in Europe. The trees are adapted to elephants. Um, you know, in, in areas where you have no big animals with elephants, uh, trees will, uh, when, they, when they snap, they don't regrow, but the trees in Ireland do, which replicates the same as what the uh, acacia trees in Africa do when they uh -huh. get pushed down by elephants. All of our plants have actually adapted with these big animals when you see gorse nothing eats gorse really you know like uh but what does rhinos rhinos really gorse because they'd be big enough to be able to eat it there's spiky plants i've seen actually in the burn growing in the middle of the turlocks which probably hippos would have fed on um you know our, our hawthorn trees you know our crazy spines on them for just deer you know like hot i don't know if you ever see the, tree, the spines and hawthorn trees but they yeah. get very big like i've seen ones that are like that big yeah. Same as an acacia tree on the Africa savanna, because the hawthorn tree would have been particularly pressurized by elephants because hawthorns live on the edge of the woodlands. Yeah. The edge. Wow. And then you look at our holly, you look at the holly tree. What does the holly tree do? It doesn't live on the edge, it lives further in where species of rhino would be. But rhino feed on the ground. They don't go high up like elephants. So what does the holly tree do? It puts the spikes on the leaves on the ground. You go high up to the holly tree, high up in it. No spikes because yeah. it's only adapted to the rhino because the elephant's not going to get it because it's in the middle of the woodlands where the elephants aren't. So all of these clues are there in our landscape, but it's it's being forgotten because by the time we even like by the time we realized that all it was already gone, like by 10,000 years ago, by the time people had got to Ireland, pretty much most of the animals were already gone, um, you know, bar few, which then, you know, led to extinction then. So our whole view, view of what natural is has been warped we think oh the top, top predator in europe is a wolf and you know ba wolves bears you think of them which they're all part of the ecosystem but they weren't like dominant species they were kind of like secondary carnivores uh, behind things like you know like the um like the lions and the cave bears uh, and the you know saber-toothed cats these are all the top predators but what's amazing is like you have in america with yellowstone when they introduced the wolf and it's uh -huh. kind of a classic example. It brought back so many different species and changed the, the entire ecosystem to the point where it's changing the course of rivers indirectly through all these actions. You know, in America, wolves were fa fairly far down the ecosystem uh, traditionally. You'd actually have a, a thing called, a, which are in Game of Thrones, believe it or not, uh, is the dire wolf, which was a, twice as big as a modern wolf, which were feeding on bigger animals. The, the wolves stuck to the small bison and to the deer, the dire wolf, uh, stuck to the even bigger bison, which are unfortunately now extinct, guys with um, horns about twice the length of a man. Mm. Uh, you know, big guys are and giant camels. Camels are originally from America and they should still exist there. Uh, and these were giant camels, so they hunted them. So you, you would think, oh, how would our modern day predators compete? It's because they, they devise ecosystems to niches. It's like a fox and a wolf. They have different prey. And that's how it all works. So what's incredible to think is, if this is what happens to Yellowstone when you just introduce a wolf, imagine what would happen to the entire ecosystem of the world if you were introducing these massive predators that would likely have even more of an impact because they're even higher up and they have their, their effects are even more varied. Traditionally in ecology, we taught that everything stemmed from the climate. 
We talk the climate dictates the ecosystem. It's all from the bottom up. It goes from climate, it, then the weather, the plants, and then so on. And it goes up to the ecosystem. That's what the ecosystem is determined. But we now know that a huge amount of it is also based on the species that live there. Um, it, the, the, um, the man you're speaking to on the last podcast uh, was talking about the mammoth steppe ecosystem. And that's a classic example, um, that, which is something I would be interested in working with in the future. There's, there's a place called Pleistocene Park who's trying to reestablish it. And I think that would be a great thing to tie into because I want to create like a kind of overall climate change type of membership where you can kind of fight all the different, uh, get connected with all the different climate change solutions. And that's one is, is mammoth steppe ecosystem uh, because that used to be the largest ecosystem on earth and it's now almost gone. Mm. Like literally a few thousand years ago, largest on earth and still would be technically. Um, and then because we removed all these large animals across Europe, you know, you, you had, you would, Still now, you would have woolly mammoths. You'd have them up in Siberia. And then you would have straight tusk elephants, which I didn't actually say this, but they were, they're twice the size of uh, mammoths, twice the size of uh, African elephants. Oh. The ones that used to live in Europe right now, like that would have lived right now. Uh, they were about 11 tons, 12 tons. Gosh. So, you know, three to two times bigger uh, than, than an African elephant. So massive animals. And, and they helped facilitate the mammoth steppe ecosystem from Siberia to Spain because they provided the, the, uh, the fertilizer and the right type of grazing structure to create this step, which instead of being tundra, which is like a very low productivity desert ecosystem, uh, to a mammoth step, which is really rich, has loads of these uh, you know, lush grasses, and that feeds huge amount of herbivores. And they didn't know this would work, but they tried it in an area of Siberia. And they unfortunately don't have mammoths yet. They're working on it. Uh, as, as you learned from the last uh, podcast now they've been telling every even since I was small like I'm only like 21 like uh, but even when I was small I remember they'd be like oh in five years time we'll have the man yeah. five years time <laughs> and every five years it come and they'd never have it ready but you know I'd say we're in you know two within decades within the next t- yeah within two decades okay right yeah like what, once they can find a way to put it into the, the Indian elephant uh, like you know the, the Spanish Ibex that worked out even though it didn't live too long afterwards. But the fact that it even had a baby on mm. instinct species was amazing. Uh, so if they could find out a way to do that. But right now what they're using to replicate uh, the, the mammoths is they're using vehicles. These uh, They're like, I don't know what exactly they are, but they're using these four by four vehicles actually to, str- to knock down the trees. Oh, and that okay. facilitates what the mammoths did. And, you know, trees are in many places in the world, trees are better than grassland often at absorbing CO2. But up in these high latitudes, trees aren't actually as good because of the cold, because of the growth rates. Uh, the grass actually will absorb way more and it will protect the, the permafrost also. Uh, you know, a big problem now is the world's warming. You have the permafrost melting. Uh, this actually serves as an insulative layer. All this, um, all this grass, which grows over on top of each other, decays and forms layers and layers and layers. It stops the permafrost from melting. So it's really important we establish this ecosystem and they're using things like horses, uh, camels, um, they're using uh, bison, um, uh, different types of cow to kind of uh, fit niches of bison while they get the bison numbers up. The cows kind of are a, a kind of stand in. They have loads of different animals that they're, they're, they're adding in. Um, where where is which this? Were native to the region. Right. Uh, where is the project? It's, it's, I, I think it's near Kalmykia in, in Siberia. It's the way out eastern Siberia. Yeah, uh, Pleistocene Park. It's called. You, you can, if anyone's interested, you can support them on their website. They have different memberships to support what they're doing. That's so the, it's basically a science experiment uh, to see can it work. Uh, they're also using reindeer. They can look. It's very easy for them because everything's melting. The ground is melting. They're finding mammoth tusks coming out of the ground all the time with all the other animals that once lived there. They can actually look, and these guys are really good scientists. Like It's incredible uh, what they've done. They're just a family of people, and they've been amazing what they've done. And they, they're looking into what this ecosystem was, and they actually can determine for every, every square kilometre, there was one mammoth at least. Uh, there was like something like a, a 20 reindeer, this many horses, this many bison. And you know they could work out that on the mammoth steppe ecosystem scale, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and millions of these animals on a scale like never before. Like, you know, like you would never expect. Like right now, biomass-wise, animals, wild animals are only about 4% of the entire biomass of the planet. 
uh, what like mammals that is mm -hmm. everything from a whale to a mouse accounts for four percent and the other 96 percent makes up uh, i think there's like something like 10 20 percent is human and the rest is all livestock interesting and, you know if you if you go back like even to america uh there was enough animals to meet a roughly about 85 percent of what we have in terms of livestock now so comparable numbers uh, to what we breed now and we're breeding animals in the billions now but actually at one time we had that many animals across the entire mammoth steppe uh, billions and billions of these animals like you would never see now um and and it was a, it was such a productive ecosystem it could support more animals than we can even in our intensive agriculture systems mm -hmm. and even with all these animals they weren't causing climate change you're actually fighting it even though we now think of a lot of livestock as causing it when everything's working together it actually fights it and it's resilient and when that I, and I was saying this before, when the entire ecosystem of the world is healthy, it can withstand climate change. And, and, and that's how the polar bears managed to survive even higher sea levels, two meters higher than today, and about one to two degrees warmer than today, which if you talk about now, that's our tipping point right now. It's like, it's like two degrees warmer than uh -huh. normal. That's tipping point. Because we've weakened it, because we've weakened the ecosystems, they were much stronger in the past. So it was like this, it was like a healthy immune system, you know, uh -huh. and, and we've weakened it. So they were it's, it's really important. Exactly. So it's really important. We, we don't just talk about climate change. We talk about the biodiversity crisis because that has been the biggest crisis over the last thousands of years, really, even more so in the last few hundred years. But it was like a crisis we never even realized was happening until it was already way on the way. I think David Attenborough talked about it in his last program. Uh, he was talking about how when he was young, he felt like the world went on forever, like the, the, ecosystem, the uh, wilderness went on forever and it was untouched. And it was only now, even though so much of that has disappeared, that he realized even back then, what he taught the way the world was actually had already been changed. It mm -hmm. was just his view. And as you were saying in the previous podcast about how our perceptions of the world has changed mm -hmm. over time. So, so as you're saying, you're talking about uh, wildflower meadows, uh, yeah. which was once the biggest ecosystem in Ireland, you know, after we moved the trees. It, was, it obviously wasn't good to remove them, but a new ecosystem came into play. Uh, and that was really good and unfortunately we even lost that and it was so yeah because it's the same story um, we have monoculture monoculture yeah. of grass monoculture perennial you know? ryegrass yes yeah, so perennial ryegrass and but it's interesting how the plants that are left are giving us the clues to the animals that have gone before yeah exactly like it's it's the whole ecosystem has these signs but we don't see it you know like you know what the the whole thing about uh, the you know the criticism people have of rewilding and there's different stages of rewilding like uh, you, you could have a uh, purely letting it do its own thing then you have the step of bringing in species that we know live there um you know in recent times when i say recent times maybe like two thousand years like the fact we know lynx run ireland the fact we know like wild boar were here and wolves were here yeah bring them back as next and then the further step then is to bring back extinct species or even species that aren't native but fill roles of extinct species like like an elephant has the exact same role as the colombian mammoth uh -huh. um even though they're not the same species it would make sense that they would fill the same niche and i know people are like oh well what about all the times we've introduced invasive species yes that's a massive problem it caused it caused so much damage to invasive species but an elephant isn't quite the same because an elephant will never reproduce the way no. um, uh, cane toads do you yeah. know it's not something that would get out of hand there's way too yeah. many elephants not like you know, rabbits before it's too late we're overrun by elephants like they, they have like one baby at a time you know yeah um, so <laughs> and they're easily you, you see could, that you can spot them quite easily yeah yeah and if you had it if you could do it on a controlled area have a certain area of prairie in america put in some elephants see how it does i mean they have it let's, like they have elephants in captivity i don't see why they couldn't try it yeah and then once they see if that's okay then extend it to a bigger area and see you know obviously it'd have to be an area that was suitable to be a national park and whatever but it's something you could you could try out and see if you even if you can't bring some of these species back because you don't have the dna you could still replicate the the role in the ecosystem by finding something similar um which i think is really interesting um but I don't know if you heard about the, the wild boar recently that were shot in Kenya. Yeah, I know. That was so tragic. I mean, the poor things. <sighs> yeah, I just... mean, I find it very confusing. Like, um, <sighs> the fact they're listed as an invasive species, even though they're native, and they're actually really important to the ecosystem because they, they uh, dig up the ground, which yeah. aerates the soil. 
it also allows other plants to grow because if you imagine there's a lot of plants growing in a woodland, they create a new area for new plants to grow and allow yeah. species that might not otherwise have grown. And they, they, well, so they for have people, really people, benefit. Yeah, people who don't know the story, there was a family of poor wild boar. I think they were probably a cross of wild boar, maybe some pets that had escaped yeah, or something. Yeah. Anyway, they were in Kerry and there was a little video of them. Somebody shook a bucket and they all came up wagging their tails. I mean, they're completely harmless. I didn't know there was a video. Yeah, there's a little video. They're yeah, all wagging their nice. tails and, you know, hanging yeah. around. And then the next thing, they went out and um, shot all the family, apart from the, the male who they eventually captured and shot. But anyway, at the same time, there's a story in England about this pig that escaped from a factory farm, Matilda. <laughs> and they found her in a forest. Matilda. Matilda, and yeah. she was huge, and she'd had piglets by herself yeah, in the yeah, forest, yeah. so the uh, sanctuaries went to go and rescue her, and then Tesco wanted her back, because she was part of their farm. So anyway, there was a massive GoFundMe to save Matilda. Isn't that <laughs> funny? She's in a sanctuary <laughs> now, she's a big pig pig, <laughs> yeah. and then on the other side, yeah. you know, here we are, panicking about four little feral piglets. Anyway, yeah, it's, I, it's, 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 it's yeah. about um, it's... people's perception of what's going on. But it's, it's great to explain this to people. People need to know yeah, and to be yeah. able to see possible futures mm. um, with these animals mm. in their future. Yeah. When I when I learned about this a few years ago, like it really turned my world upside down. You know, uh, when I first like read books and stuff that were teaching us this, like because, you know, up until about 20 years ago, this wasn't the uh, uh, known taught in ecology about any of this so when i learned this i was like well so that you're telling me that this is the way the world should be so so it's not just the animals we have now like when you think of like you know wild romania you think of maybe some bears some wolves some lynx they're great they're part of the ecosystem but you're telling me we also technically should have what we have in africa or or similar species like in australia they should have two-ton wombats and you know giant birds and six meter long lizards and the whole uh, reason Australia is dry is because of that. I won't get into that, but yeah, uh, because okay. we removed I... them and it changed the ecosystem again. So it, it really turns the world upside down when you realize this. And it's, it's really amazing to think and it's fascinating. It's also very sad at the same time. Um, so, yeah. But I, I mean, think edu education education is the point. And it is, you know, exactly, to tell people, yeah. get it out there, get your, get your messages yeah. out there. And yeah, before we get totally involved in all of that, can you tell everybody how they go about getting the trees if they want to join Reforest Nation, uh, what the process is? Yeah, the best way they can support us, like, is just on the website. Um, there, we have a memberships and we also have like a one-time, you know, tree adoption. Yeah, the memberships are even cheaper. Uh, because it means that we can reliably source a, a certain amount of trees each year, get them in bulk, bring down the prices even more. Uh, and yeah, they, they can look and see um, what they want to do. Like maybe they want to just offset their footprint uh, or maybe they want to go a bit further and you know have a really big impact on the forest each year or something like that. Um, or they can you know look at their family members and maybe they want to decide the whole family wants to reduce their carbon footprint. And uh, yeah, it's it's it's... It's something we want to make accessible and also in the future when we are planting the trees they can come out and plant them themselves with us so anyone who, who sponsors the initiative is, is most welcome to come out and plant with us uh, on uh, tree planting days that we have in the future um so they can you know it's really tangible and they can actually see the trees they've sponsored so that's really cool so what's the website it's a uh, reforestnation.e great so if you had that magic wand what would you do i think i know what you're going to do with the planet yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's it's okay. So it's a toss up between reduce the human population <laughs> because it, it all, I mean it sounds very like uh, like Maoist or something like that, like something like you know communist leader would do. But like I, like it's it's um most of like the problems in the world all come back to overpopulation ultimately. Like most of them, at least, you know, to do with, uh, I mean, a lot of our own problems, but mostly the environmental problems all just come back to overpopulation. I mean, there's so many different things you could talk about, what causes, like what, what, you could talk about so many different problems, but ultimately, if there wasn't a lot of people, we'd never be able to make all the problems happen. So, I mean, yeah, ultimately, I would love to reduce the population uh, and make sure that we didn't, didn't just have vacant cities. I mean, like reduce the the amount of the cities so everything would be in proportion it wouldn't be like all of a sudden you know 
Oh, you know, most people are gone. No one has, no one's able to run anything because it's not. Yeah, that'd be a bit freaky. Yeah, I'd (laughs) want to sustainably reduce it. uh, So it wouldn't feel like everyone's disappeared. It would just feel like you're living in the, uh, you know, 1500s, but with advanced technology. Uh, Either that or or like, or like you're saying, like rewilding, you know, Uh, like if we, if we could, even though it wouldn't open up all the, areas of the world and it wouldn't maybe reduce the current you know like extinction crisis happening uh like maybe depopulation mode it would be good to be able to at least have those animals there so if we had areas that we were going to open up to create into wilderness we could have them there um because that would just be amazing for the ecosystems um uh, like like so many different processes because because everything is connected like as I was saying, like I was, I was not going to get into it, but I will just briefly. In Australia, they believe the reason it's a desert now is because a huge amount of it was covered in forest. Humans arrived there for quite a while, and they lived fairly good harmony with the species. Uh, there, uh, you know, things like Mars. You know, you think of the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger. That's not a top predator there. That's like a, a jackal. Uh, it was really the marsupial lion, which is just called a lion because it was a similar predator to a lion. Uh, and, and it was the top predator. And you also had megalania, which was a six meter long lizard. Um, you, you had types of anteater, which were their own species of marsupial anteater. You had um, the uh, giant wombats, about two ton wombats, which were the big kind of elephant kind of species of the area. Okay. Uh, you also had, um, had um, short faced kangaroos, which were giant kangaroos that were so big they couldn't hop and uh, so you had, you had them too so but yeah so humans started lighting a lot of fires which was very practical because it's a great way to kill a lot of animals and kind of get rid of the predators and you end up having loads of cooked bodies you can eat it's very practical um, in a way but unfortunately the fires caused a lot of damage they also hunted the young of a lot of species like all over the world like it wasn't like they just hunted the big animals because that would be quite hard. So what humans have done is they they've hunted the small guys, the the, the calves. I never and because that. most yeah. megafauna are slow with reproducing, it means you only have have a certain amount for it to have it you know a cascading effect. Like with the mammoth step, we removed a few mammoths, a few big herbivores. It meant that there was slightly more trees because there was fewer mammoths, which meant less space for mammoths, which meant uh, less mammoths which meant uh, more trees and the cycle just kept increasing increasing until just a small tipping point of maybe a reduction of 20 percent led to the complete collapse of the ecosystem yeah. it's crazy um, and they think similar happened in australia and when they removed these giant herbivores uh, nothing ate the leaf litter off the forest floor and there's something that happens when you have a lot of built up of leaf litter um, as you see in certain parts of Australia now, which is fires happened and yeah. they raged across the continent and they think that changed the climate of Australia, which I'm not saying it was a lush tropical forest, but yeah. it didn't have quite as much desert as it has now. So a huge area of land uh, got replaced by desert that was once forest and was kept there intact by all these species. So, so what were the herbivores? The most Wait, which, sorry, which were the herbivores in Australia? Uh, so native herbivores you're talking i think it's called diptrodon something like that it's, it, there's a few different species of it it's about a two-ton wombat about bigger than a rhino and you're it's a, her- a, a yeah a herbivore so yeah okay. no, like, there's so many different species Fantastic. Um, you had like the the giant kangaroos by the way all these guys lived with what's there now it's yeah. not like they replaced them everything there now just fitted into the ecosystem perfectly you know you had the you had the uh, types of anteaters, you had uh, actually giant birds, two meter tall birds. Right. Um, what's what's most interesting is that the last megafauna are really, really recent because some of the last places where there was megafauna were islands. And why? Yeah. Because they were the last places we got to. And the megafauna wasn't as big because in islands they can't support as big uh, sizes. But often when you get like a species arriving in islands, it can grow too because maybe that species fills a niche where it couldn't have before. So that's why in New Zealand, up until a few hundred years ago, you had the moa, which was the tallest bird ever, uh, which was descended from a tiny little bird. Uh, and, and there you had the harst eagle, which was the biggest eagle ever that preyed upon it. Uh, and there was loads of different species of moa across Australia. In Madagascar, which people only arrived at, I think like crazy recent, like 1500 years ago, something like that, um, they still find 
bones, like not fossilized bones and eggshells. Like you find eggshells of, of these birds called elephant birds, which are similar to the moa, except they're much heavier. Uh, they made about one ton. Oh my gosh. Ton, which is crazy for a bird. Like, like we- Could they fly? Are, found, like, we, are they flying? No, or, no, 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 just walking no, around no, no, they, like could, penguins. No, but no. They, yeah, yeah. But Marco Polo actually talked about it because this is so recent. Uh, Marco, like they, they only went extinct about 500 years ago. Uh, Marco Polo talked about a bird that could carry away elephants. And now they, they think he was, uh, it, it kind of was like Chinese whispers, like the story changed. That's what's called the elephant bird. It, but he was right. I mean, what they found was these massive big eggshells are about this size, like about twice, like 50% bigger than the basketball. Um, and then they thought, well, some massive bird must have made this. So it must have been so big a carry away an elephant. So that's uh. that's where they taught that. And there was them, and there was also um, uh, lemurs the size of gorillas, and there was giant fossas. I don't know if you know the fossa, which hunts lemurs. There was bigger species of them, which is like the top predator in, in, in Madagascar. There was also smaller species too, like the Malagasy hippo, and um, which was only about the size of a pig. Um, oh. And actually, believe it or not, I was watching a program recently uh, called... Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's about a guy called Forrest Galanti. He's a wildlife biologist like me. And he goes around the world finding animals that were once extinct. Amazing program. And he's been incredibly successful, believe wow. it or not. He's found uh, tortoises on the Galapagos that they thought were extinct over 100 years. He's found leopards uh, in Zanzibar that were believed to extinct. He found uh, extinct species of caiman. He also <laughs> found, uh, well, he didn't prove it, but he found potential proof of the jav and tiger still existing. But one really cool thing is he went to Madagascar and actually the locals had stories of the Malagasy hippo still existing. And even very recently, like within the last hundred years, they could have been there. And they noticed because he literally, like, I don't know, he has some luck, this guy. He, 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 they found like a tusk on the side of this dried up riverbank because it was a drought. So everything had kind of collected. They found a little tusk. And they were like, whoa, this could be a hippo tusk. And like, if they didn't keep searching, you think, well, it might have been a hippo tusk. It could have been something else. It might have been a, a pig tusk. He decided to look beside it. They were dr not dredging, but like they were sticking their hands all through the mud in this dried up, horrible, disgusting river, river bank. And they spent like a few hours there, him and a woman. And he literally pulled up a skull of a, an unfossilized skull of a Malagasy hippo, dwarf hippopotamus, unfossilized. They thought this animal went extinct like 1500 years ago, but actually this guy was dated to less than 200. Oh my so, goodness. Uh, it's, it's, even though it does seem like the megafauna extinction was so recent ago, we like blah, 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 the ecosystem's changed since then, which isn't true. Like the ecosystem can't change that quickly. Um, but the last pockets of where these megafauna existed um, were very recent because they were the islands. Uh, like mm. like like John Slots in the Caribbean, so that just shows you how recent it is, and um, that really it's up to us. If we remove them, it's up to us to fix it. You know, it's not well, unnatural. I, what we did was unnatural. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's a so, great place to to leave it because it's such a hopeful message. Yeah, you know that he's. I hope you know, so. It's I hope all so. is all is not lost. Heavier nature book that you'd like to recommend to people? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, no, I know. I was thinking about this because uh, this interlinks with all this is a really good book uh, called uh, "How Do We How Do We Get Into This Mess?" I think it's okay. called by, by George uh, Monbiot, uh, and he he talks about a lot of things, but he also talks a lot about the megafauna extinctions. And he's great because I don't know if you ever seen the video on YouTube. If anyone wants to look it up about uh, how wolves change the course of rivers, uh, he's a great voice, um, and he, he talks about how the introduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park has had so many implications for the rest of the ecosystem. And it's just trickled down. In fact, it's called trophic cascades, by the way. I should have mentioned yeah. that. This thing that happens when you introduce these large animals to fit an extinct niche, uh, it's called a trophic cascade because it, it cascades through the trophic layers, uh, starting with the top predators, then to the then to the herbivores, all the way to the to the plants. Mm. Um, so so that's a, a good book. The, the other books I like is Sapiens. Now it's not it's actually about human history, really. It's a really it does cool talk about the, the, it, It's really good. And it does talk about a bit about the megafauna extinction, especially in the beginning and how we interlinked with the world and the other species of humans that we outcompeted. There was actually seven species of humans and we outcompeted them all uh, until very recently. The most recent one was like the Hobbit, which lived only about 500 years ago on the islands of Indonesia, believe it or not. So sorry for another day. Wow. Uh, <laughs>
You know about hobbits being a thing, no? No. No. Yeah, no, we, we have to contend with a lot of different species. Um, the, the, even the Dutch talked about them, uh, potentially seeing them. So, well, you should look that up. It's called Homo florensis. That's the scientific name. It was a okay. hobbit, about a meter tall, a little humans like us. And uh, the, the locals talked about this pot-bellied man with a strange hairy face, uh, speaking a strange language in the forest. And all the, no one believed them until they found the bones until about... Uh, 2003 I think the friend of bones but yeah so um yeah the other book was uh, sapiens and it, it it talks a lot about um you know how humans have progressed and, and how we um are so intertwined with the natural world and uh, it's just a fantastic read in general if you want to put in context where we are right now with the natural world and where we're going in the future it's, it's a great book so I, I recommend both those books mm. well look Gerard, thank you so much for really explaining to everybody and in such a passionate way because information needs to be out there and it's also it's fascinating it's so interesting and it'll be I'm sure everybody will really enjoy yeah, the know, conversation I... you know what we'll have to have you on again in a few months time so I'm sure there'll be more yeah, yeah. especially if you go on your trip around the world um sounds yeah, really exciting well thank you so much and well done for all you've done with Reforest Nation uh, everybody look up the website it's fantastic what you've managed to get off the ground in lockdown so well done thank you so much mary it was a pleasure thank you for listening to nature magic we have exciting news our cafe and gift shop will be opening with new tenants next wednesday the 14th of july 2021 walks will be free to access but the indoor and outdoor play areas will be closed it will be lovely to welcome people back to borough nature sanctuary for the first time since christmas pop in to support michael and rose in their new venture